Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Marjorie Cohn, past president of the National Lawyers Guild, who examines Donald Trump and the Republican Party's continuing effort to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Michelle Mahone, a registered nurse with the National Nurses United Union, who talks about the major challenges ahead for the equitable distribution of coronavirus vaccine. And Reverend Nathan M. Sell, an Episcopal priest and campaigns director with Faithful America, who discusses his group's mission to confront religious bigotry and Christian teachings that serve a hateful political agenda. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Thousands of Rohingya refugees who fled mass violence in Myanmar are being relocated to an uninhabited island in the Bay of Bengal, named Basan Char. In early December, Bangladeshi authorities transported over 1,600 refugees there from a massive camp on the border with Myanmar. Human rights groups protested the move, charging that the refugees were forcibly relocated to the island where facilities had not been inspected by the United Nations. Bangladesh plans to send a total of 100,000 refugees to the low-lying Basan Char, which is vulnerable to cyclones and other dangerous storms. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch say the transfer, which occurred without informed consent of refugee communities, should be halted. They say that authorities should immediately return those on the island to their families in Bangladesh and follow due process, including the full and meaningful participation of refugees in any relocation plan. These groups are also demanding that Bangladeshi officials permit outside monitoring groups and journalists to inspect facilities on the remote island. An Amnesty International report last fall chronicled cramped and unsafe living conditions on Basan Char, along with limited food supplies and allegations of sexual harassment by Bangladeshi Navy personnel and local laborers. Human rights monitors further charged that refugees were beaten after they went on a hunger strike. Over the summer, a 250-megawatt coal-fired power plant on the edge of New Mexico's Zuni Mountains was permanently shut down. It's another sign of trouble for the U.S. coal industry, despite pro-coal cheerleading from the outgoing Trump administration. The economic slump brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic severely reduced electric power demand around the world. In Europe, Britain has shut down a third of its remaining coal plants, and Spain cut its coal capacity in half. Two-thirds of the coal burned around the world is used to generate electricity, a role that many other fuel sources can fulfill more cleanly and even more cheaply. Coal-fired power plants typically emit twice the emissions as a natural gas plant. For the world to meet the ambitions it set at the Paris Climate Summit five years ago, The Economist magazine declares that coal's decline needs to be made both steep and terminal. The demand for coal remains highest in both China and India, but it's in Asia's long-term interests to reduce its dependence on coal. However, short-term political and economic costs are large enough that action may be too slow. 
Hope for the future lies in solar farms and onshore wind power generation, which are now the cheapest sources of new electricity for at least two-thirds of the world's population. Teams of undercover vice squad New York City police officers regularly descend on black and Latino neighborhoods, leaning into car windows and knocking on apartment doors, looking for men or women who are willing to exchange money for sex. The undercover assignments can be lucrative for cops to rack up overtime pay, but as ProPublica reports, these cops frequently make multiple arrests on scant evidence. Undercover vice cops largely ignore affluent white neighborhoods and expensive hotels. Merith Dank, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Law, observed, I know for a fact white men are the key demographic who patronize sex workers. ProPublica uncovered multiple cases of false arrests during stings of Johns, which, since 2014, led to a million dollars in settlements paid to at least 20 individuals falsely arrested on charges of soliciting a prostitute. As the crime rate fell in New York, cops kept up pressure in communities of color despite a similar number of complaints about sex workers in white and non-white neighborhoods. Michelle Alexander, who is black, sometimes worked undercover out of a precinct in Jamaica, Queens, before she retired in 2012. She recalls asking her supervisor, when are we going to Manhattan, after working too many sex stings in communities of color. As punishment, she said she was reassigned to an early morning tour monitoring a Manhattan subway station. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In supporting the Texas lawsuit to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election, unanimously rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, many observers believe that President Donald Trump, 126 House Republicans, 18 state attorneys general, Georgia Senators David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler, and Texas Senator Ted Cruz, have violated their oath of office to uphold the Constitution and defend democracy. Even now, after all 50 states have validated their electoral college votes, officially confirming the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, most Republican legislators refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the 2020 elections. And some GOP lawmakers are expected to challenge the election outcome in Congress on January 6th. Bill Pascrell Jr., a Democratic congressman from New Jersey, has called on House Democratic leaders to refuse to seat any members-elect who supported Trump's efforts to invalidate the 2020 presidential election outcome. Representative Pascrell cites Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies from service any individuals who seek to attack American democracy. More than 1,500 attorneys across the U.S. have also signed a letter calling for the American Bar Association to investigate the conduct of the Trump campaign's legal team to reverse the election results, including its leader, former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Your reporter spoke with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, past president of the National Lawyers Guild and author. Here she examines the Trump regime and Republican Party's continuing effort to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election and the threat they pose to U.S. democracy. 
Trump has mounted a massive campaign to basically steal the election. He's filed, he and his supporters have filed uh, some 46 lawsuits, virtually all of them lost. There is no, um, no evidence of fraud at all. In fact, even his trustee aide, William Barr, the attorney general, um, who has done everything Trump wanted, saluted and marched to Trump's agenda, had to admit there was no massive voter fraud. And in fact, Bill Barr resigned. Um, But goaded by Trump, uh, Republican legislators in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, all all tried to aid and abet his stealing of the election. In Pennsylvania, they asked the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to um, to stop certification of the uh, of the state. Uh, actually, the U.S. Supreme Court um, lost. They lost. Uh, Republican Senate candidates in Georgia told the Republican Secretary of State should withdraw the certification. And uh, even though he had been a Trump supporter, he said no. The Republican Party in Arizona demanded that the election not be certified and uh, challenged Twitter followers to. Uh, to say they were willing to die to prevent certification. Nevertheless, they certified the Biden electors by the 8th, which was the safe harbor day. Um, Also, the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, who is under investigation himself for fraud, sued Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin for key battleground states. Um, And they were supported by 17 Republican attorneys general in 17 states and 106 Republican Congress members, more than half of Republican Congress members. Um, And they alleged that the elections were uh, conducted so improperly that the Supreme Court um, should disenfranchise 10.4 million voters and let state legislators choose the electors. And Texas was alleging that these four states used the pandemic as an excuse to unlawfully change the election rules. And they also alleged in this lawsuit before the Supreme Court that Biden's chance of victory was, quote, less than one in a quadrillion, unquote. Congressman Bill Pasquale Jr. of New Jersey, a Democrat, has called on House Democratic leaders to refuse to seat those 126 Republican House members who supported Trump's efforts to invalidate the 2020 presidential election outcome. Pascrell cites Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies from service any individuals who seek to attack American democracy, as well as Congress's power to exclude members by majority vote. Is this a viable plan of accountability for these Republicans who uh, want to overthrow our democracy? Well, I would be in favor of it, but uh, Nancy Pelosi, I, I think that hell would freeze over before she would do it. She is, uh, you know, she's so cautious and so traditional and so conservative, I can't see her doing it. But um, really, it is an act of sedition, um, you know, 126 members of Congress. And uh, 70% of Republicans think that Joe Biden's election was illegitimate, according to a Quinnipiac poll. Um, and, uh, and that is very, very disturbing. Um, Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, gave a speech on the Senate floor on Friday. And uh, he basically said that the re- this, this is how the Washington Post reported it, that the Republican Party has morphed into a malignant and profoundly dangerous threat to the country and the long-term prospects for our democratic 
predictability. And uh, Murphy told the Washington Post, I have a very clear sense of the danger this all poses to the republic. If this becomes at all normalized more broadly than it already is, they will steal an election two years from now or four years from now. And I'm not sure how we keep our democracy together. And uh, and I think that uh, he has a point. Um, Also, Trump uh, may well mobilize his uh, paramilitary thugs to um, to create some real serious violence. People are talking about civil war. Um, Trump uh, has a tremendous hold over these paramilitaries who are armed with assault weapons, and uh, you know we may not have seen the last of that. And Trump is is has a very tight control of the Republican Party. We'll see how long that lasts. But we we really have our work cut out for us, Scott. That was Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, past president of the National Lawyers Guild, and author. For more analysis and commentary on President Trump and the Republican Party's attack on democracy, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the U.S. exceeded 300,000 deaths from the coronavirus and more than 16 million confirmed cases of the disease, Health workers across the U.S. received the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech. Another pharmaceutical company, Moderna, will likely receive Food and Drug Administration authorization for the emergency use of its vaccine within a week. A detailed review of both vaccines by the FDA confirmed the two-shot regime was highly effective in a clinical trial and carried no serious safety concerns. Because the supply of COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. is limited, initial supplies will be allocated to healthcare workers and vulnerable residents and staff in long-term care facilities, which have suffered an estimated 40% of all coronavirus deaths in the U.S. People with chronic health conditions and who are over 65 will also be in the front of the line. For average Americans, however, the earliest most people will receive vaccinations will likely be in the spring or over the summer. Your reporter spoke with Michelle Mahone, a registered nurse and the National Nurses United Union's Assistant Director of Nursing Practice. Here she discusses the major challenges ahead for the equitable distribution of coronavirus vaccine to vulnerable populations, communities that are skeptical of vaccines, and those that have been underserved by the nation's for-profit healthcare system. In the United States, the impact of illness and death has disproportionately impacted people of color. It has disproportionately impacted nurses of color, right? Uh, We've got just 4% of the registered nurses in the United States are Filipinx, yet they comprise almost 60% of the deaths. So this a disproportionate impact has always been present within our healthcare system, and it has uh, really shown itself in very bad ways throughout the pandemic. And when we look at addressing inequality and healthcare disparities and the impact, we can see areas that have greater need than others. And so it's very important that when we um, evaluate how we deploy a tool that we use it um, in combination with information we have about the the way that the virus has already impacted certain communities. Um, And it's very important that we are considering distribution, not just by title, for example, nurses or doctors, 
um, but, but by exposure risk, right? There are many who are exposed, for example, who support the care in the hospital and provide very important work, such as um, environmental services, dietary, and other many other occupations that, that provide support in high-risk areas. So one of the challenges that we see with the allocation is that in the, um, the plan, right, that what we're calling the healthcare workers and the long-term care high-risk folks, in the, in the group of what we call 1A, which is the first group, we already know that with, even within that group, only a very small percentage of people will actually have access to inoculation. Um, and then on top of that, the various states have been left to make decisions beyond this broad category. And so um, even at various health department levels, uh, we have seen examples where those priorities of the hospital who then gets to make the determination of how to allocate those doses um, may align with the priorities and they may not. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, a lot of ambiguity. Um, but again, even with this, uh, the initial uh, percentage of people who will have access to inoculation, even within the high priority group, is very small. And so we cannot allow um, ourselves to feel like that we can just stop all of these other measures. You know, even with a vaccine, all of uh, these people need protection. Michelle, what in your view should our government, be it federal, state, and local, be doing right now to ensure the fair and equitable distribution of these vaccines and certainly address the vulnerable populations we've been talking about, as well as people in various communities who are very skeptical and fearful of taking these medications. Uh, as we've learned time and time again throughout this pandemic is that um, the corporations are not going to willing, willingly um, you know, put their profits aside. Uh, we've seen that with hospital corporations throughout the United States, PPE manufacturers, et cetera. And, but uh, most importantly, I think what needs to happen right now is that we need to engage in a conversation about putting the priorities of the, about, about the people's priorities first. Um, and that means uh, supporting people, not just in uh, the vaccine initiative, but in all of the initiatives that we need to truly address and go to the heart of the structural problems and failures of our United States healthcare system. Um, and that means having open and honest conversations about the vaccine, you know, being very clear this is what we know, what we don't know, what we hope to learn, um, and making the space for people to ask questions. But it also means being really honest and tough about the, the misplaced priorities of our U.S. healthcare system um, and, frankly, um, uh, uh, to address those on a more permanent basis. Nurses implore people to please stay home, uh, avoid um, social gatherings, uh, please wear a face mask when you leave um, your home so that we can get through the next few weeks so that we, have, um, we can maximize the hope that comes with uh, a future where we have effective preventative measures such as a vaccine. Um, and really, we are calling on everybody to call upon Congress to demand that, they, uh, care, that the uh, stimulus package for the people be implemented, as well as um, that would include the protections that we need to continue to work and keep you safe. You can uh, visit our website at www.nationalnursesunited.org. That was Michelle Mahone, a registered nurse and assistant director of nursing practice 
with the National Nurses United Union. For more discussion on the equitable distribution of coronavirus vaccine, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the 1960s and 70s, the liberal wing of faith institutions was ascendant, with a progressive religious component to key struggles like civil rights, farm workers' rights, and peace. But for almost 40 years, the right wing has sucked most of the oxygen out of the faith sector of our society, including the explosive growth of conservative televangelists, organizations like the Family Research Council, and a Catholic church that has moved in a more conservative direction. In 2004, progressive faith organizing began through the National Council of Churches, the umbrella group of mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S. The group doing the organizing, Faithful America, became independent in 2013. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Rev. Nathan Emsall, an Episcopal priest and campaigns director with Faithful America which does online organizing and has involved more than 180,000 people in its campaigns. Here, Reverend Emsall talks about his group's past successes and what progressive people of faith have confronted during the Trump era. Well, we, we describe ourselves as the largest online community of grassroots Christians putting faith into action for social justice, reclaiming Christianity from the religious right. We do that using online campaigns and online organizing. So moveon.org, Indivisible Credo, I think a lot of these groups are now familiar to folks uh, in a way they weren't when we were first founded. There are a lot of great Christian organizations and progressive organizations out there that have a communications approach and a grass tops approach and highlight faith leaders, and that's so important. But we help give people in the pews a voice to to raise their faith and their religion and, and, and put that into action. Our members are both lay and ordained and represent every major denomination in the United States. What are some of the issues you've worked on? We were really involved with the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2009. We did a lot of work on climate change at that time. We helped a group of Catholic sisters beat a fracking pipeline in Kentucky in, I believe it was 2013. A lot of our organizing is around LGBTQ rights and full LGBTQ inclusion in the church, in Christianity. Every human being was created in God's image and has God-given dignity, and the gospel is all about love and has nothing to say about sexuality. We stand for that gospel love and fully support LGBTQ rights and stand against all of the bigotry and discrimination we see coming from the religious right against LGBTQ persons. Tony Perkins is the leader of the Family Research Council, which the Southern Poverty Law Center, the civil rights group Southern Poverty Law Center, has identified as a hate group. Faithful America's members in, I believe it was 2013, 2014, helped persuade MSNBC to stop featuring Tony Perkins as a talking head and pundit representing Christianity on its programs, and also curtailed his appearances on CBS, on, I believe, ABC. These networks would bring on Perkins for the Christian point of view, not for the right-wing point of view, but for the Christian point of view, as if there is only one. And then he would spew all sorts of hatred in Jesus' name that in no way represented Jesus. And thanks to 
sustain long-term pressure from our members, MSNBC stopped bringing him on. That was a, a very important victory, we thought, certainly at the time. Um, we've continued to pressure uh, Catholic bishops and Catholic schools to stop firing teachers from marrying the people they love, uh, teachers and other staff members. And we've certainly spoken out about Franklin Graham and, and Jerry Falwell and their support for Donald Trump. Nathan Emspaul, what about this year? You said you actually brought on more staff for 2020. 2020 has been a particularly big and successful year for Faithful America. As folks might imagine, we've been really busy around the coronavirus pandemic. Unfortunately, there are a lot of religious bad actors out there spreading false information about COVID-19 and refusing to take important public health actions in Jesus's name, even though Jesus was a healer who taught us to care for the sick. So from the very start of the pandemic, Faithful American members were working to organize a social justice response to the virus and stop the spread of that disinformation. We continued working on, on social justice measures around the pandemic, helping pair churches with asylum seekers and refugees who didn't have a place to stay, who would usually live with individual families, but those families had to close their doors in March and April because of the pandemic. We helped those refugees and asylum seekers find willing churches that were empty and had space to sponsor them and, and their requests for asylum. Jim Baker, the infamous televangelist from the 1980s, is back on the air now, and he was touting a fake coronavirus cure at the start of the virus. Uh, our members sprang into action and helped get his show taken off at least two different networks. That was a really important victory for public health. We've continued to take action around the pandemic all year long. Right now, we're, we're working to stop the spread of disinformation about vaccines. And I'm proud to say since that campaign began, at least one bishop has changed their position and now supports the Pfizer vaccine after previously incorrectly claiming it was made with stem cells and no Catholic or Christian should take the vaccine. Well, that's not true. That's not how Pfizer or Moderna made their vaccines, and we're helping correct that misinformation in religious circles. I imagine some issues might be rather divisive. For example, have you done any work around abortion rights? As an organization, Faithful America does, has not run campaigns specifically related to abortion access or reproductive rights. We have spoken out against the excommunication or denial of the sacraments to politicians for taking pro-choice stances. We made a lot of headlines uh, around both Tim Kaine and Joe Biden in, in their different elections when bishops threatened to deny them communion or, or local priests in Biden's case in Rhode Island. Uh, we've said that no one should be denied full participation in, in the church because of their political positions on those issues. Um, and, and we've spoken out against folks who harass women outside abortion clinics in Jesus' name. That was Reverend Nathan Emsall, an Episcopal priest and campaigns director with the group Faithful America. Learn more about Faithful America's work by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio, and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KPRI in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.